Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, uh, be sure to check out all the content that we put out there on the internet, the interweb. Uh, Go to YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on the podcast side of things, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a rating and review. Give us five stars. I want to jack those numbers up. Um, So if you've ever benefited from anything that we put out into the world, investing related, uh, and you want to pay us back, the best way to do that is uh, sign up for quickfs.net. But if you want to go the extra mile, it's to leave us a rating and review. So in today's podcast, we're going to be throwing it back to the OG focus compounding days. Mm -hmm. And that is doing snap judgments. People request this all the time. We actually stopped doing this <laughs> because um, it's it's tough. We're doing snap judgments, right? And sometimes people know these names a lot more than we do. And we're just looking at it from a high level overview. And it's like, you know, it's just kind of tough to do. But I think people really valued just seeing, okay, like, what are your first steps when you're looking at a company? So really, okay. I want to provide uh, like the education of a roadmap in a way of this is what I would do. This is what my first thoughts would be. Could be right, could be wrong. But then, you know, this is where I would go with it to either confirm or disconfirm uh, what you're looking at. So what we're going to do is I did a a call for uh, tickers that Mm -hmm. we can go over on Twitter. And to be able to do that in the future, follow me at Focus Compound. And we have a bunch of tweets of a bunch of different tickers. So we'll just go through as many as possible and, um, you know, just get your snap judgments on them. It's better if they're stocks that have some history that we can see on quick apps yeah yeah if you want your ticker to be talked about something with 10-year financial data is better than something brand new absolutely so we're gonna look at the first one vsto this comes from ben h this is the guy that started the cash tag jeff on twitter so kudos to ben and he actually also is a big celsius fan because of uh Focus compounding. So look at that. Give us a yeah. We should be getting a royalty. On I was Celsius, I was right? literally thinking about that last time that we put up that video where we were talking about Celsius. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, we've talked so much about Celsius on this podcast. I don't think we're yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> like we've probably sold uh, over a million cans because of our, our advertising. Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Yep. Right. No, perfect. Um, so uh, VSTO Vista Outdoor Inc. Right. Ever heard of the company? Yeah. Okay, so let's see. Manufactures and markets consumer products in the outdoor sports and recreation markets in the United States and internationally. The company operates through two segments, shooting sports and outdoor products. Hmm. Um, uh, Let's see. Beta 0.39, share turnover 339%. uh, Current PE, seven times. uh, EV to sales, 1.1 times. EV to free cash flow, 10 times. uh, EBIT, 10-year median margins, 8.4 times. Um, Thoughts on the company? Anything that stands out to you? Yeah. Um, so, do you have more of the description? It sells ammunition, right? What does it else does it say? It yeah. Let's see. Ammunition, hunting and shooting accessories, um, such as high-performance hunting arrows, game calls, hunting blinds, game cameras, decoys. What else? It sounds like they also sell uh, golf technology products, hydration products. Basically, I'm picturing in my mind like uh, things that sell at Cabela's, Dick's right. Sporting Goods. But they aren't the retailer. No, they're the manufacturer products. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Um, I have not read enough about this company in the past. I am aware of it. Uh, it's very hard to tell, right, from the financial results that we're looking at here. Yeah, very. 
all over the place. Yeah, so we should margins. say this because many people are listening on audio, I guess. But if you look on things like return on invested uh, capital or you look at um, margins, you can see that there was a period where they made decent money. Um, they were profitable and at times had higher than 10% returns on capital for you know like five years or whatever. But then they had a period of negative returns for about five years. And then just recently, uh, that stepped up a lot. And then of course, with COVID and stuff, I don't know about that. Uh, I would look at gross margins for a company that's producing stuff and then selling through people who might have concentration there. And the problem here is how low the gross margins are, right? They're really, really low gross margins. Mm -hmm. So the 10-year average is what you have there for the 10-year average gross margin. 23.8%. Yeah, so this is something we were just talking about today. And I don't want to get into like complicated microeconomic stuff, but this is... um, it has more upside than you'd think in good years, but this it turns out to be very cyclical, um, not necessarily in sort of an economic cycle or whatever, but when you have that high level of variable costs. So if your gross profit is that low, uh, then what tends to happen is that you're going to have returns on capital and things like that that look almost like an auto parts maker or something, where you have these returns on, cap, uh, returns on capital that are driven a lot by the volume of business that you're doing relative to your fixed costs. So... If you're only making, you know, 25 cents or something for each um, uh, additional sale that you make of something, and then you have this base of fixed costs, then in years when you do a lot of sales, it's suddenly going to look really good and it's going to, you know, possibly excite people, get them drawn into it and stuff. And then on the other hand, if you have years where you have bad volumes, then people may be too pessimistic because those can turn around. So it is the kind of business that probably when it's losing money is not just because of some popularity thing that it's losing money, it will come back. And so it might be attractive even when it's losing money as a stock to buy it. Uh, what's price to book on it? Price to book three times. And price to sales? One times. So one time sales, EV to sales is 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, EBIT on average has been pretty strong actually. And so has free cash flow. So it, it, EBIT's like what, 8%? Is it? Yeah, 8.4. Yeah. So, you know, that's 12 times pre tax profits, basically, if you think that your EBIT's normally going to be 8% and you're trading at about one time sales. Um, so that's not a bad price for a stock. It's not that different than a PE of like 15. So, like a normalized PE of 15. So, it seems like an average price uh, for the company right now. And it, in today's market, would be a value stock but it's going to be very lumpy from year to year based on volumes probably. And um, uh, they can, businesses like this can actually generate very high returns on invested capital for brief periods usually. Mm -hmm. If they had any way to fix that where uh, they'd have sufficient volume in all years and stuff, then it would be better. But you're just dealing with very low gross margins. And so if you take, we've talked about gross margins versus uh, net tangible assets and things like that. I don't know, can you go to the balance sheet so I can see that number? Um... So let's see, uh, what do we have in inventories and accounts receivable? For 2021, accounts receivable 339, inventories 455. These are millions. Yeah. yeah. So doing that, we're at like, um, uh, and then we like subtract out payables. Like yeah. So, so we're at, let's say we're probably north of 700 million invested in the business uh, right now. And obviously, I can change a lot from year to year. Um, so you have about $700 million or something in the business uh, tied up into it uh, to generate returns. Uh, now, they're financing that with debt, but that is a financial decision. So the core business needs like $700 million of net um, capital, net working capital. PP&E is not significant, right? 
No. Nah, it's no. not really. They, they could use the debt for that. So anyway, so we'll use that number. And then if we go over to the income statement, um, what did they do in terms of operating profit? Yeah, and then gross profit. So, th you know, it has some potential here. Because even if I add back PP&E um, to it and assume that they can't finance any of that, then we're still talking about generating returns of 70% or more in terms of gross profitability. You're going to really want gross profits divided by net tangible assets to be north of 50%. Otherwise, it's very hard to make a business work no matter um, what you're doing because they have a significant amount of, of working capital. So and all you did, rough math in your head, was you took the gross profit of 633 and mm -hmm. divided it into the a little bit north of 700 million, rough math, of uh, the net tangible assets. Yeah. But that we are using years, recent years, where the returns, as everyone knows, are much better. They yeah. weren't as good a few years ago. Um, so I'd be curious if I was looking at this, like what happened from 2016 to 2017, and then what happened, you know, 2018 to 2020, and then basically what happened 2021. I mean, it's been all over the map. Yeah, and of course, one thing that comes to mind is, do they sell a lot of ammunition? You know, yeah, guns uh -huh. and ammunition. Which, and, if you look at a lot of gun-related companies, they jump all over the place. Right. And then, of course, with COVID and stuff, outdoor things. Mm -hmm. So both of those would come to mind. Uh, Not only that, but ammunition as well. Yeah. So current results are good. Um, it has the potential when it has sufficient volume to be a really attractive business, make a lot of money. Um, but there may be many years where it doesn't have sufficient volume because you're operating on a really thin amount of uh, what you're is left over to cover your SGNA and stuff like that because your gross profits are so low, but your turns are good. So roadmap for future research, what are some things you would do? I don't think I have you'd to be, learn about the industry. Yeah. I don't, I mean, would you be interested in this company? I know people who buy those sorts of things, so I'm sure I could talk to them and, and figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then I'd want to know about customer concentration, uh, not customer in terms of end user, but customer in terms of retailer. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. And uh, capital allocation, huge. You know, for that company longer term. Sure. Yeah. Um, here's one that we've talked about on the podcast a lot. Dover Motorsports DVD. Yeah. We've seen one of their racetracks in uh, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. We've seen both of their racetracks, actually. Right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Only one was functioning as a racetrack then, yeah. but they plan to use both now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is NASCAR tracks. They have two locations uh, split off from another company. So the if you've heard of Dover stuff that has to do with gambling, that's a separate company. They were once part of the same company. Um, it I don't know the latest news on it. I thought it was more interesting, more attractive when they were trying to sponsor two events at one track and not get the other track going because eventually they could um, get rid of the other track because they have a ton of uh, land in uh, Tennessee that could be sold off to some other better use. Um, running one race at each track isn't something that I like to hear about, you know. So that's the problem there. Um, obviously, with COVID and stuff, that's messed up everything in terms of the money that they've been making. And then also a bunch of their money comes from the uh, their share of TV rights for the races. And over the long term, you've had dec big declines in viewership and attendance at races that have been made up for in the financial results by higher prices paid per viewer by um, TV, you know, and that's true across all sports. So the sports rights have gone up. So um, those are the two things I would worry about. I think there's been a big decline in the popularity of, of NASCAR that way. And then I'm not sure how they're dealing with their capital allocation. And, you know, it would seem to make more sense to get rid of the um, track in Tennessee and to focus on Delaware. Uh, because they had a lot of land that could be sold off mm -hmm. and to be developed into 
you know um and the one in tennessee uh, the area around it was like homes and yeah. stuff like that being built yeah and they're doing some um like warehouse stuff that they sold off part of it for right so those would be the things that would make sense would be like distribution stuff and and housing um it's not a bad area they could get you know eventually could get a pretty good price for it and stuff it's, it's not built up but it's within reasonable distance to some places you'd want to commute to or you would want to use as distribution centers to sell into so I, I could see that land being somewhat valuable and i don't think it's ever going to earn a really good return for them compared to running uh, having two races at the same track so that's what worried me about it it's like a controlled company it is yeah, yeah. um they have different share classes right what's the stock price now two dollars and 71 quite a bit higher yeah. yeah so it's a lot higher but yeah we looked at it when it was at i don't know half this price or something what was that yeah, it was, it was something like that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Here we go. Another favorite. It's cheap on many measures, you know, with the land and with the free cash for the can generating a good year. Rick's RCI Hospitality Holdings. Uh, they. Uh, I've not uh, done scuttlebutt on this one. <laughs> strip clubs. And um, uh, what's the new concept? It's bombshells bomb or something? They're just bombshells. Just bombshells, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a couple of them in Texas, and that's, I guess, their plan going forward. From what I see people talk about this And Bombshell is like a Hooters-type concept? It is, yeah. I've actually been to one of them once because right. I had a buddy that was a shareholder. He is a shareholder in Rick's, okay. and when he was in town, he wanted to go to it, so we went to it. Um, let's see. Per is it as family-friendly as a Hooters? What's that? Is it as family-friendly as a Hooters? Uh, I mean, it's regulated like it's a restaurant and stuff. I would say, I didn't think it was like inappropriate or anything like that, quite okay. frankly. I mean, it's not like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was that inappropriate. Okay, um, so two different businesses. It's not like you're basically. walking to a strip club is what right. I'm saying. Right, so two different businesses. One, they own a bunch of strip clubs. Yes. And then two, they own um, this restaurant concept, which is basically a Hooters type uh, business. Correct. Even to sales oh, which four times. Which there's also times. a bunch of others too. There's other competing concepts, this, including in this area. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of this business... He owns a pretty decent chunk of the company, I believe, correct? Uh, I believe that's true. He, he owns some of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've heard him talk. I, I mean, I've read the transcripts of him talk and things like that, yeah. EV to sales four times, EV to free cash flow 27 and a half times, 10-year uh, media margins 20 or 20%. From what I've read online, it sounds like their capital allocation has really shifted over the years, it sounds like. The okay. buyback stock, stuff like that um any thoughts on the company so with a company like this i'm not sure i understand the cost of capital really for it in the long run because i'm not sure how much they can use traditional banking things um i don't know that you can get um effectively like mortgages and things like that on strip clubs um and so i you might be financing things through seller's notes and at uh higher than junk bond type interest rates so they might have a higher cost of capital if that's true this would be similar to certain other businesses like um you know marijuana things and stuff that might have trouble at times financing them traditionally um you know i doubt that a lot of banks would want to be involved with financing strip clubs generally so you're probably going to have higher uh cost of capital that way and to the extent you do business outside of traditional finance things then i would be worried about corporate governance risks um, and things like that, you know, fraud and, mm -hmm. and all of that, obviously. Just that things are a lot messier that way than having, you know, um, corporate term loans and things like that. But maybe they can get financing from someone, I don't know, that would be willing to do that. See, as you can see there with the PP&E and all that, they require a lot of uh, finance and they use it and, and that's appropriate for the kinds of things they run. I just don't know if the cost of capital will be particularly low by, I don't know if there's much benefit to adding a lot of debt 
uh, as there would be at other companies. So if you're a restaurant company, a hotel, you can get some fairly low cost debt because no one's worried about financing your business. But I'm not sure that those same institutions would be wanting to finance strip clubs. So that's my biggest, you know, uh, difference or whatever with other people might be on that, just figuring that part out. So the same amount of return on invested capital might not be as attractive here as it would be if it was something that um, banks are comfortable lending to, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, look at the market cap. It's gone, it's gone up a ton, 185-ish million or 200 million to, you know, 600 million today. Yeah, and so there's the some year. attractive aspects of the industry. Uh, generally, um, you're going to have some, to some extent, a moat in that it's the kind of thing that that there's some regulation of and that local governments are not going to want a lot of. So if you're going to have one large strip club, they're probably going to like that a lot better than having a lot of smaller ones that are probably um, less able to comply with their um, regulations and not really their regulations, but just not causing a lot of negative externalities for the area. Um, so it's sort of like a co-part that way, you know, where they'd want to have one junkyard, they wouldn't want to have, you know, 10 of them all clustered together. So I, I can see an appeal there. If it's run with good capital allocation, I can see an appeal there. You know, like I've said before, in terms of how the business is run and, and all of that, there are significant risks to, um, to just not necessarily having enough oversight or of your individual clubs to know about your liabilities in certain ways and things like that. Mismanagement of cash, liability issues, um, things like that. Yeah. Got it. Here's one that you've written up on the website. Duet Cameron Trading Company. Mm -hmm. This was written up on Focus Compounding. Uh, it's like building products. Stock. Yeah, it's very yeah. stock. Yeah. Uh, manufactures and distributes specialty metal products and distributes wood wood products to home centers and other retailers, primarily in the United States. The company operates through three segments: industrial wood products, lawn, garden, pet, and other, and seed processing and sales. Yeah. So, uh, so really, they sell like pet cages. Uh, yeah. Stuff uh, like that. Fences. Fences. Yeah. Yeah. So really, it imports stuff from China, assembles it into basically fences for your dog and stuff in your backyard. That's what we're really talking about. There's a lot of other stuff listed there, but much of it does not generate any profits. So like, they had like a, what, a, a tool arm or something like that, that they mm -hmm. divested. Yep. And the seed thing for the most part, there's some little seed business. It's a little aspect of their seed business that might be profitable, but the rest of it just passes through a lot of it. That's not, you don't get good margins or anything. So uh, most of that stuff that you mentioned doesn't really make a difference one way or the other for the business. It's not losing a lot of money, but it's never going to make a lot of money. So basically it's making uh, pet and outdoor stuff for, for, like I said, like your backyard. It's way more metal stuff than people think uh, because it's history was as a lumber company then obviously you figure that's what it really does but it doesn't it, it like i said it imports mostly from china assembles and sells um and so you can see revenue and stuff has not gone up a lot but they actually disposed of something so it's a little bit better than you'd think in the the pet category uh very exposed to tariffs and things like that with china so if it's ever cheaper to do those kinds of things in the U.S. than versus China or in other countries than versus China, then that is a problem for them. But obviously, its operations aren't in China or anything. It's just importing them here. So presumably, it could import from somewhere else if it had to. It's just doing it from the cheapest place it can get it. Um, and then there were some issues most recently where they had a failure to fill some orders um, with COVID and stuff. And then 
uh, some prices rose on them and things like that. So their numbers might be messy going back a year into COVID and going forward up to a year uh, unless supply issues even out and stuff like that. It's, it's basically, you know, um, closer to just in time, uh, type stuff that would be disrupted by this kind of thing. So a good returns on capital, uh, I think sensible. EBIT sales 0.6, 10 year media margins on EBIT 7.6. So kind of in that value category or yeah, something I mean, if I, if I had to pick between Jewett Cameron and, uh, Vista Outdoors, I think that probably the the financials that we're seeing here with Drew Cameron are more attractive for the but it's a tiny company and, and the brand names are not well known or anything. But I mean, if we go down point by point, you can see why that might be, you know, what are their 10 year gross margins and stuff very much in line with what we saw over at Vista and stuff like that. SGNA and all that very similar. So I mean, structurally, this company looks a lot similar, not as good on the free cash flow number, um, but good enough. And if we go to the balance sheet, we might have some figures. That Don't they also buy back stock or haven't they in the past? Yeah. Yeah. But they had some. Uh, it was a older. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we look here, we're looking at. Let's see. Seven, okay. And we can look at the income statement. So I'm just doing the same calculation of trying to figure out the gross profit. Yeah. I mean, the, the gross profit divided by NTA is very strong here. So, and it's very small, which is the other thing. I mean, we don't know, but it, it, it operates out of very few locations. It claims it has like a couple locations, but they're basically right next to each other. So they're really just in one location and they're just using them from slightly different things. And um, they're very small. So there are some economies of scale are more likely when you have a very small company in terms of things like SGNA and stuff like that, then you have it a very large company. So if you had growth, it could be more profitable. The problem is they don't really have growth, as you can see. They've been very flatlined for a long time. But if things went positive for them in terms of volumes and stuff like that versus um, Vista, then you'd get similar sorts of um, uh, results and you probably have higher returns on invested capital here than you would there. Um, I'm just mentioning the two because they're kind of comparable in terms of the... uh, um, margins and the amount of SGNA, so the amount of variable cost and fixed costs, some things on returns on invested capital and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of that. So shares outstanding has gone from eight million to four million over the past nine, ten years. There's been a major change in sort of ownership. I think there is maybe a trust officially that has some ownership, but then there are other insiders. So insider ownership has dissipated over time. Um, through some factors like that, like buying back stock, and they they are willing to buy back their stock, um, I, you know, which could be part of the explanation for the liquidity issue. Uh, when your stock is this small, it is in terms of stock price uh, counterproductive to buy back your stock because you dry up liquidity, and so it, the stock buybacks are not driving up the price at all. Um, they're leaving people with more ownership of things, and if they want to pay dividends later and stuff to them, then they'll make more money. But it, it isn't helpful in terms of driving up the price. In a big liquid stock, you might be able to drive up the price by buying back the stock. I'm not saying any company wants to do that by buying back their stock, but I think investors think that's what will happen. And certainly in a very illiquid stock, buying back the stock um, t- the way that they do would tend to just reduce what would have other been, otherwise been liquidity. So if you had insiders sell out into the market and stuff over time, this could have become a more liquid stock. What's the market cap on it? Uh, 36 million. Yeah, and it's pretty illiquid. Mm. Um, small company, very small. Yeah. Very small. Let's see. T-I-P-T. Tip Tree Inc. 
market cap 337 million ev 524 million industry insurance uh, let's see through its subsidiaries underwrites and administers specialty insurance products primarily in the united states it operates in two segments insurance and mortgage uh, price to book 0.8 price to sales 0.3 uh, price to premiums 0.6 10-year median margins on underwriting 76.8 return on equity 10-year median returns 3.1 so look at this growth i wonder if this has been this is the same company but uh total revenue in 2011 14 million total revenue 2022 815 million it looks like only the last five years are stabilized as something that looks like the same business. Yeah. So, so 2015 was, was starting up or something before then. You know? Yeah. 300, 392 million and 2020, 815 million. Underwriting yeah. margin. 72.3%. Yeah. That's not calculated in a way that would be helpful to us. Um, you see pre-tax income though, you can see. Um, but with the accounting changes and stuff, that could be difficult to figure out too. Uh, we do have their total revenue and their earned premiums. Um, a few things are interesting about that, if those are correct. So you have um, their uh, total revenue for 2020 is what? $815 million. What's earned premiums? $478 million. Yeah. So either there's a very big fee business of some kind in there, and it says that they do mortgage as well as insurance things, or it means that there would have to be in a large amount, because they've grown, of premiums that you've written but haven't earned um, under there, too. Uh, net premiums written is more of what I would care about in terms of the size and the risks they're taking now going forward, so that would be something to think about. Um, it's really just too complicated from this, from this business description, for me to be able to figure anything out about it. Uh, obviously the prices and stuff are, are not excessive, but it's really hard to tell, especially with the mortgage thing and what's happened with COVID and all of that. It, it, it would be difficult to know. I just don't know what business they're in generally. Um, specialty is very broad term. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then, you know, mortgage could be anything that way. Does it give any more details about what they write? No. The company provides niche commercial and personal lines insurance, credit insurance, and collateral protection products warranty and service contract products and solutions, as well as premium finance services. So the insurance stuff they're doing, I could probably figure out. Uh, those are areas, I, almost everything that they, it's mentioned in there is something that I've looked at and studied someone who does write some of that insurance, um, if that's really what, the kind of insurance they're writing. Uh, the mortgage thing that you mentioned, I don't know about. So it just says, it, on the part where it says, uh, to institutional investors, do you see that sentence? It also offers mortgage loans for institutional investors. Yeah. Yeah. That's the part I wouldn't know anything about and just would have to study up to learn. So there's nothing that we can do about guessing on that point. And mixing the two together in the same thing means that from a consolidated standpoint that we're seeing in QuickFS, it could really throw everything off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you'd have to consider the parts separately. Yeah. You'd have to go through the filings for this yeah. one. Got it. Let's see. But... There are lines of, uh, the insurance lines that they're writing seem to be things that you could learn about and understand. Lots of financials today. Let's talk about Federal <laughs> Agricultural Mortgage Corporation, AGM. Mm -hmm. Farmer Mac. It's a GSE, Farmer Mac. Mm -hmm. uh, if you know Fannie and Freddie, it works like them. Uh, it do, and it also does a bunch of other things over time. What? Can I tell a story about this? Okay. Talk? So Jeff wrote up a report for this company, like what, three years ago? Something like that. And... 
I don't know. It's funny. And I think we released like the first half free and then you had to pay uh, to get the second half for the premium wall. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the first half was you were saying a lot of great things about the company and stuff like that. And I guess at that point, the CFO reached out to me because he wanted us to talk about the business. And then I guess so we set the meeting up. And then I think after we set the meeting up, he must have paid for the other like the last half of it where the part where you basically said why you weren't Mm -hmm. gonna invest in the company or not interested in it and he did tell me on the phone he's like yeah yeah i like the first half a lot more than i like the second half yeah and uh, i just thought that's why i always think about that when i see this name go ahead sorry uh fun little behind the scenes for people so it's obviously a um similar to the other gses and stuff if it's run well conservatively all that it it just makes a ton of money i mean basically what you do is you issue um debt which because it's assumed to have an implicit guarantee from the government um it trades at a small spread versus the same u.s treasury so you need 10-year debt you issue it they look at and they go okay well it's your trade at 50 basis points over treasuries or whatever and that's what your cost of uh capital is for that then you get a really big balance sheet as you can see here they're levered what 20 sometimes i I tried to calculate it before Uh, it seems in line with what it was when i wrote up the company 24 25 times Mm -hmm. something like that Yeah. yeah Um, that's a little complicated because of the different things they do. They, they have some business where they never have losses basically. Um, so they're sort of providing balance sheet capacity to those companies really. Um, and in other things like, uh, farm and ranch loans, then there's direct stuff where they lose, uh, money on it at very, very low rates, um, very low charge offs, but they are technically taking credit risk in that case. Um, so, you know, there, it really, if you know, Fannie and Freddie, and what they were like and why Buffett invested in them or, or Munger and Buffett invested in them, then uh, you would know why this company would be attractive. I do think that there are some issues that with these kinds of companies that eventually they'll be run in a way that is dangerous at some point in a bubble and that you're probably going to have a farmland bubble every 50 years or something. And at that point, the company like this could go under. It, it did have a brush with death, but it had nothing to do with the um, performance of their uh, loans, what it actually had to do with is, um, uh, it had invested some of in, um, like, uh, what was it? It had bought, um, Lehman preferred. So in its securities mm-hmm. portfolio, it had bought some things that were preferred stocks or, or, um, debt obligations and stuff of, of companies that went under or were otherwise sort of outside of what they, they do. So it's a securities portfolio that wasn't the agricultural stuff. So they're buying, um, loans basically uh so people are making loans and then turning around and selling it to them and so as you could imagine their operating expenses are are nothing uh, you know um and so they can make a ton of money because they're just making interest rates spread in a sense it's like a hedge fund or whatever you want to call it type operation that way but it just keeps turning around doing the same thing over and over again with tremendous leverage so if you make this tiny spread let's say what did their uh, net interest margin one percent or something right now uh net interest margin yeah uh, 0.8%, 0.9%, 1%. That's the average. And then you leverage that up. As you can see, what's their return on equity been the last couple of years? 12.1%, 14%, 14.8%. You know, it's hard to imagine that it would do much worse than a 10% return on equity in a lot of environments. And it's hard to imagine that it would grow much slower than 10% or so. Um, it has grown certain things much slower than that. Uh, and then, then it would just depend on dividends. So if it retained everything, it doesn't. It pays some out in dividends. But if it retained everything, you'd expect it to grow at 10% or better, um, generate a 10% or higher return on equity and grow 10% or more. Uh, and obviously, that's attractive given that the P on this thing always seems low. 
like the P on this is eight, right? Right now, yeah. price to book mm-hmm. a one P of eight. Yep. It's a much. It always screens super. It's cheap. a much yeah. simpler business than like um, actual banking. You know, unfairly simple um, because it's, you know, created government thing that way. Also, same as uh, from what I remember from the filings, the same way as uh, Freddie and Fannie and stuff, the actual guarantee from the government is not very large versus the size of the enterprise. I think it has a line with the Treasury or something where it can borrow like a billion dollars or something. I forget what it is. So when you look at net interest income, it's gone from 121 million in 2011 to 191 million in 2020. Um, but EPS earnings per share has gone from a dollar twenty eight to eight dollars and 27 cents so up you know call it eight times yeah and what you see there which is interesting is the interest rate issue the company then this is the really unfair part of the advantage that i mean about why it's so much easier than than um than banking is that because you're going to issue uh debt off of a spread on on treasuries and then use that to buy what you need to buy so you can match things off really well you'll notice that interest rates have been They've changed at times from 2011 to 2020. Mm-hmm. What is the lowest net interest margin they had in that period? Can you see? 0. 0.5 in uh, 2014. Okay. What did they have the year before that? 0. 0.9. And the year after? 0. 0.9. Okay. What do they have now? 0. 0.8. Okay. So, you know, for a moment you could have a lower net interest margin, but in general, in like every year, we're talking about 1% plus or minus, you know, 0.2% or something. It's not even that they need to know that much what interest rates are going to do. Um, you're making a constant spread, so you're kind of using the the perception of you're you're basically priced off of risk free money, and then you're using that to buy things that w- are perceived to have a risk, and it's just the arbitrage of that, um, exactly like the other GSEs did, and uh, and it's much earlier in the securitization of all that stuff than it was for them, obviously when they got the financial crisis, uh, much smaller, and they do other things. Uh, that you can see and they break it out for you in their presentation and all of that. I think it's a little difficult to figure out everything that's happening with the company over time. Like if they start to drift into things you don't want them to do, there's plenty of different ways they can do that. You know, they can, um, some of their uh, farm ranch and loan stuff has some, occasionally has some houses on it where it probably is more of a, um, is not a working uh, thing, but it is effectively more like a residential mortgage. That's only a small part of the mix, but you know, over time that could creep up or something without you noticing it in terms of their underwriting standards. They lay out what conforms and doesn't write in the 10K, tells you exactly what they'll write and what they won't. And then they do some bigger things with other institutions that are all sorts of different stuff, but again, very much like GSE things. And you can read about it in their presentations, and that's probably the best way to learn about it. It's always seemed cheap to me. Um, it does have financial risks, but they're similar to what uh, uh, would be risks at other banks and things. Um, you know, it's a, it's a system that's set up to probably offer you better than single digit returns. And yet it, you know, so whenever it trades below book, you would just think it's too cheap versus other financials. And especially now because it, some other financials have gone up quite a bit versus mm-hmm. what we're seeing here for the, the price. Um, do you have the stock price? Ninety-seven dollars and sixty-seven cents. Yeah, so I'm not even sure it's gone up as much as other financials this year. I don't know that for a fact of where it was and where we looked at it and all of that, but um, man, it's been flat for a while now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. Some other financials have continued to um, have their stock price go up more than this. So you know, but their risks and things. It's a you know, it's in Washington, D.C., like all the people who work at it are people who work for the farm credit system and different levels and things like that. There's 
you know, it depends on government relations with that. It, it has a like a corporate communications arm and stuff like that. So it's very much just like the other GSEs don't have risks similar to them. You know, you could have changes in their charge or changes to um, how they're regulated and all those sorts of things, obviously. But the basic business model will turn out 10% or better returns on equity and will grow quite a bit over time. So it, it seems cheap just relative to the business model. Could do a couple more here, maybe one more SEB. We'll do another video or another podcast going over more of these names too. Seaboard Corporation. They do a lot of different things. Yep. Pork processing, agribusiness, and transportation company worldwide. Yeah. Six segments pork, commodity trading, and milling, marine, sugar, and alcohol, power, and, and turkey. Mm -hmm. The pork segment produces and sells fresh and frozen pork products to further processors, food service operators, grocery stores, and distributors. Let's see, even to sales, 0.5, 10-year medium margins on EBIT, about 4%. Uh, it's currently trading six times PE. Revenue has a 10-year CAGR of 5%, going from 5.7 billion in 2011 to 7.1 billion in 2020. Yeah. Kind of all over the board here. Yeah, so um, returns on invested capital this company used to be very good. It was a strong performing stock. It never splits the stock. What's the stock price? Because this is what people recognize it for. $4,190 for sure. Yeah. Um, did a lot of capital allocation, capital reallocation. Extremely secretive company, um, I would say. I don't know what they are now, but when I looked at them, you know, um, uh, well, it's been a while now. So it was in the earlier part of the decade. Um, I looked at them most deeply and tried to figure out what I could about them and stuff, getting different news sources from places and things like that, um, what interviews I could turn up. And even then it was interviews with um, managers at lower levels than um, uh, not the top people and a lot of information about their strategy and stuff. So less communicative than most public companies would be. Um, but willingness to make a lot of different cap allocation decisions and stuff in the past. Last 10 years haven't been good though, right? No, it doesn't look like that. Yeah, it's declined. I mean, the share price has gone up, but the overall business looks different. Returns yeah. on capital, stuff like that. Yeah. So if we look at like uh, the income statement, for instance, uh, let's see. Uh, well, yeah, we can do that. Um, you know, until this most recent year, you didn't have any increases. You had some occasional increases, but basically you just had a, um, cyclicality and gross profit. You had mostly just cyclicality and operating profit. In fact, somewhat lower operating profits in the most recent years. Basically looks like a business that hasn't changed that much in, in 10 years in terms of made any progress. So you didn't, you kind of, your opportunity cost was you're holding something that isn't growing at all while they're putting more money into the business. If we look at their balance sheet, um, you can see that, let's see. Yeah. So there's some accounting changes probably in there, but if we go down to like um, total assets and things like that, you've had a huge increase and it would be better if I could, can I see equity? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, by some measures, it depends, but by some measures they, they've kind of doubled the investment in the business uh, nearly with no real added returns from that. So you've had a decrease of about half in terms of the returns that they had versus the past. Um, commodity type businesses, however, sometimes there's economies of scales at particular sites. You know, milling has that, uh, pork processing, beef processing, any of those things have it. Um, there can be definitely be economies of scale that way. And then some of this is like around transportation stuff, whether you have uh, good locations for that kind of thing. I don't know enough about the corporate culture and things like that from what I tried to learn about. Um, they did seem to be 
certainly rational profit maximizing people in running it at the top from what I learned about say 10 years ago, but it's hard to tell. And a lot of the information that I was able to get is more like muckraking type stuff than it is really things that give you information about the company, but it gave some insights into it. Um, so, you know, hard industry to understand. I don't know a lot of the things that they're in, not a ton of disclosures that would help me understand those industries, but people who know each of the things they're in might have a much better idea. They're, they're pretty big. Yeah. This is not really a small company, no, although it has low company. share turnover, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Low beta. What's the market? Because of the price. What's the market cap on it? 4.8 billion. Yeah. And it, it trades on the New York Stock Exchange. People see the ticker all the time, I'm sure. So um, it would be an interesting one to learn a lot more about. Interesting one to do a lot of scuttlebutt on to find out about the organization, all of that. Um, I would definitely be curious about it. It it's, was something of a mystery to me when I looked at it about uh, five to ten years ago. I looked at it twice, actually, quite a bit. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for uh, tuning in with us here today. Thank you so much to everybody that asked uh, or gave us the tickers to go over. Like I said, there's a ton. I mean, even while I've refreshed this, we have 19 new tweets that came in, um, really just giving new tickers. So uh, we will do more of this. I think it's good because people like to hear how, you know, you uh, first look at a company and what your thoughts are, where your brain goes and the things that first come to mind. So we will do more of these in the future. So to be able to get access to that, make sure you hit that subscribe button. This is great for YouTube content. Um, and of course, if you're listening on the podcast side of things as well, uh, hit that subscribe button. If you want to get access to QuickFS, which is the website that we use for this, go to quickfs.net. And when you sign up, be sure to tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Uh, my favorite feature is actually clicking this download financials part, and it will pull up 20-year financials of everything that we just went over. Uh, it's pretty cool to go back and look at all the different metrics and see uh, how the business has evolved or gotten worse over time, quite frankly. So uh, be sure to sign up and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I'll thank everybody so much for the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.